Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation chapter number 12. <clears throat> Let's get there. You know, our lives are filled with stories and the best stories have rivalries in them, right? The best stories have protagonists and antagonists. There's this good versus bad sort of dynamic that's happening. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this, this week, what are some of the protagonists versus antagonists? What are some of the rivalries that I've been introduced to over the years? And I thought the first one that came to mind was my very first story that was a rivalry was Peter Pan and Captain Hook. I don't know how many of you grew up on Peter Pan and Captain Hook and Wendy and the Lost Boys and all that, but I thought that was a great rivalry, old Peter Pan and Captain Hook. And then I thought as I grew a little bit, I started to read more stories and hear more. And I thought about Inspector Javert versus Jean Valjean and Les Mis, one of my favorite stories. And it's just, it's such a, a heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching uh, story and these rivalries, and they collide with each other, right? Then I thought about moving to Western Pennsylvania, and immediately, Stillers vs. Ravens came to mind, right? This, this rivalry for Baltimore that is not for Pittsburgh, right? Because we have six Super Bowls, and the Ravens have two. We've played, I don't know how many times we've played, but we've won the vast majority of the games. So they see it as a rivalry, and we see them as the, you know, the little stepbrother, right? So if you're a Ravens fan, more lackeys, wherever you're at, I apologize to you. Sorry, not sorry. But then I thought about the most classic rivalry of all, which has to be, I think, maybe the number one rivalry, cats versus dogs, right? This is a rivalry that's gone through the years and is, is one that I have opinions on. I won't share all of my opinions with you, but I'm just kidding. I will share my opinions with you. You know me and my wife, we're not pet people. I have two of my boys right here, and they will attest to this. Uh, we're not getting pets in our house. We're not having... We're not having a snake, we're not having a rabbit, we're not having a hamster, we're not having a dog, we're not having a cat, we're just not pet people. Uh, we actually were entrusted to babysit two betta fish about two years ago. Someone in our neighborhood went on vacation for about 10 days and the 16 year old said, I have these two betta fish, can you take them? I'll set it up and, and can you feed them? So the betta fish came to our house and by the time they were back from vacation, they were both dead. And I'm, I was, it was, it was really gut-wrenching to call this teenager, like, we killed your fish. And I don't know how we killed your fish, but they're definitely dead right now. So we're just not, we're not pet people. If you want someone to sit your dogs or something, you no, know, that's just not happening. But if I had to have a pet and it came to a cat or a dog, undoubtedly I'm choosing a dog. I will go on record, and this will, some of you won't like me for this, but it's fine. I hate cats. I just do, okay? I, I hate cats. And I feel like it's my moral obligation as a man to hate cats, right? Because, thank you, man, I'm getting some applause. I like this. When, when a guy's in trouble, he goes to the dog house, he doesn't go to the, to the cat litter, right? 
Men are associated with dogs and women are associated with cats. That's why there's cat ladies, right? And you have, even in our stories, you have Spider-Man and Batman and Ant-Man and Catwoman. That's the way that it works, right? And if you're a guy and you love your cat, you know, whatever. But most of us don't. And it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. Because women that love cats love cats for all the reasons they hate men. You think about it. Cats are selfish. Cats are stubborn. Cats don't listen to you when you talk to them. They want to stay out all night. When they come home, they just want to lay around and do nothing. All the things that guys get a bad rap for, cats get to do and they get love for. Like, I don't know how that works. And I feel that men should hate cats. I just think it's a moral obligation. So can I get a witness, men? Okay. You say, Pastor, do you have a Bible verse for that? No. But I think that that's even telling in and of itself. Cats are not mentioned in the Bible. They're not there. Look, word search it. There's no cat. You've dragons, horses, there's all kinds of animals. There's no cats. And I think that even God created them, but was like, I'm not putting you in the pages of my book. Like, you don't, you don't have a space. I think he gets it. So, cats versus dogs, they're rivalries, right? Why, why do we talk about rivalries? Well, because Revelation 12 is a rivalry story. It is a protagonist versus an antagonist rivalry. You say, what is this, this rivalry? Well, here's, here's what it is. It's Wonder Woman versus a baby-eating dragon. You say, do what? This, this rivalry in Revelation 12 is the story of Wonder Woman versus a baby-eating dragon. And if you think I'm lying, we're gonna read the first five verses. I'll come back to these five and we'll explain them in more, in more detail, but you'll get the gist of this, okay? Here we go, Revelation 12. There appeared a great wonder in heaven and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Verse number three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, let's stop there. <clears throat> Revelation is a book that is the subject of much debate. And a lot of the debate, debate centers on when is this book symbolic and when is this not symbolic? When is this literal and when is this not literal? However, there are moments in the book that become very, very clear where it tells you this is symbolic and this is what the symbol means. So for example, we had that in Revelation chapter number one, where we saw the mystery of the seven golden candlesticks. And you get to the end of chapter number one and it says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches of Asia. And it's like, thank you so much. You know, you took the symbol, you told me that it was a symbol and you told me what the symbol meant. Here in Revelation 12, while people debate lots of, of the book of Revelation, pretty much everyone uniformly agrees, this now starts a section of symbolism and it tells you as much. Verse number one, it tells you that there was a great wonder in heaven. 
There is, for lack of a better phrase, this great theatrical presentation in heaven. Great wonder is megasemeon. That word literally means a great sign, a spectacle. When you see this word used, and it's used dozens and dozens of times in the Bible, it always denotes something with meaning beyond itself, something with a deeper spiritual significance. And it tells you, verse one, here's this great wonder, a woman. Wonder woman is what we're calling her. It tells you in verse number three, there's another wonder, a dragon. And this woman has a baby. And you need to identify who these three major players are if you can understand the text. You can read it and think like, what is going on here? Like dragons and women and babies and what? I don't understand. But if you can identify who's the dragon, who's the baby, who's the woman, then it makes sense. So let's make quick work of this. Who's the dragon? That's the easiest one. Because if you look down to verse number nine, we haven't read it yet, but it will tell you the great dragon was cast out. And here's the dragon. It's that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Case closed. The dragon is the devil, period, right? Then you have this baby who is born and this child is born. We're told that the devil is going to try to destroy this child when he's born. We're told this child will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we're told that this child in verse number five ascended to God into a throne. Now it never says his name is Jesus, but there is only one child that could ever fit this description. And there's a positive ID that is very easy to discern. That Jesus is born, the devil immediately wants to take him out via Herod. Jesus is not taken out and ascends post-resurrection, ascends to the father and has a throne. So the devil is the dragon, the child is Jesus. And the million dollar question is, who's the woman? And this is where the debate comes in, is, is who is the woman? And here's what we know about the woman. Verse one, she's clothed in sun, moon, and 12 stars. She has this, uh, this apparel that is the sun, moon, and stars. We're told that she gives birth to Jesus, verse five, that's helpful. We're told in verse number six, that she flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. We're told in verse number 13 that the dragon wants to not only destroy the baby, but wants to destroy her. So who is this Wonder Woman? Well, there's lots of opinions. Christian scientists say that the Wonder Woman is Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of uh, Christian Scientology. That she is the woman and uh, the baby that she's bringing forth is the truth that she has and that the dragon is the mortal mind that wants to destroy her teaching. Hardly what the text says. <laughs> it's a pretty big twist. Those that are Catholic primarily say, not always, but generally, they would say that the woman is the Virgin Mary. And on one, on one hand, this makes sense because Mary gave birth to Jesus, right? But if you see the further descriptions of the woman and you start to see that she flees into the wilderness for a very specific period of time for three and a half years, you see at the end of the chapter that this woman has lots of other offspring then there's this whole sun, moon, stars thing going on and how does that attach to, to Mary? And not to mention that we're told the woman is, is a wonder, that the dragon is a symbol of something else and that the woman is a symbol of something else, kind of meaning the woman's not a woman. So I don't think it makes sense of the text to say that this is the Virgin Mary. There are some Protestants that will say that this is the church. 
I don't think that it's the church because this tells us that the woman gave birth to this child. And what happened was the inverse. Jesus gives birth to the church. The church doesn't give birth to Jesus. Not everyone agrees with this, but many do, and, and I do as well. The only ID that makes sense is that this woman is in fact the nation of Israel. And I wanna take a little bit and talk about the nation of Israel and how this plays out in this text and why that this would make sense in light of the entirety of scripture. So look with me, if you would, in verse number one, you'll see that there's special favor given. Verse one, there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Here's a woman and she's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, the only thing you see like this in all of the Bible is Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter number 37, where Joseph has the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And that is clearly interpreted to be the root system of the nation of Israel. The, the sun is Jacob and the moon is Rebekah and the 12 stars are the 12 tribes or the 12 nations of Israel. And you see that this description is used of this woman that's telling. And you're told that she's with child, she's travailing in birth, she's pain to be delivered. And she is this travailing woman who's bringing forth a baby. Once again, that description is given to Israel over and over. The prophets use this, Jeremiah, Malachi, uh, Isaiah, use this description as, of Israel as this travailing woman. And we're told in no uncertain terms that you could say that Jesus came from the nation of Israel, that the Jewish Messiah could be regarded as a child of the Jewish community. You're told this in Isaiah chapter number nine. You're told this very clearly in Romans chapter number nine. You can read it for yourself in verses four and five of Romans, but you're told point blank, Jesus came from Israel. So taking the woman and saying, this is Israel, this makes sense of the Genesis 37 prophecy. This makes sense, or dream, I should say. This makes sense that Israel could give birth to this man. And we'll go further as we move along here, but I think there's a positive ID for the nation of Israel. And what you learn immediately is that the nation of Israel is blessed. They, they were blessed via Joseph's dream. They were blessed via Abraham and the covenant that God would take the blessing to them and he would extend it as a blessing to all the nations. That they were blessed to bring forth the Messiah and that he would come from not just Judaism, but come from Judah and come from David. That they are blessed. And honestly, as Christians, we are blessed because of them. You can read Romans if you have any doubt about this. That... There was this system that was set up and we as Gentiles are grafted into that because of their unbelief, but we're still blessed from them because the Messiah comes from their line. The Bible, you could say, is largely a Jewish book. Uh, God took Abraham and said, I'll make a blessing to the nations from you. And Christians have long understood, if you've ever wondered like, why do Christians like have magazines that are Israel my glory and they're, and they're interested in Israel and they pray for the peace of Jerusalem or they, they wanna bless Israel and, and they, they use this, that God will curse them that curse Israel and bless them that bless Israel. Isn't that like the Old Testament? Isn't that gone? Isn't that done with? Like, haven't we turned the chapter on that already? No. Christians have long understood that you don't want to curse Israel, but you want to bless Israel. And this says that this nation has special favor. This woman has special favor. It also says this woman has a satanic foe. It says in verse three, there's another wonder in heaven and the wonder is what? The great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now you know where people get the costumes for the devil from. <laughs> 
right? This red costume with a long tail and horns. Where do do we come up with that, this, this verse? This is what is trying to be depicted. Now, does the devil actually look like that? No, this is a wonder or a symbol to to represent him. But it tells us in verse four, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. Now, I cannot say with 100% certainty that this is what this means, but I would say this is probably what this means. Most think this is what it means. That it's describing in time past, Satan's revolt, Satan lifting himself up. And that dragon saying that I wanna be like the most high and leading a rebellion in heaven and taking, it says, a third of the stars. We've already seen in Revelation a star being representative of an angel, of him taking a third of the angelic host with him to rebel against him and become his minions, more or less. And if that discourages you, like, man, a third of the angels are bad, maybe let it encourage you. Two-thirds of them are good, right? For every demon, you've got two angels. That, that, that's, a, that's a happy thought for me. But he leads this revolt and it says that the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. What does this mean? It means the devil is motivated to murder. Where did Herod get the idea to murder all the baby boys when he learned that this child king was going to be born. That was satanically motivated. Where, where have people through the ages gotten the idea to persecute the people of Israel and all the atrocities that have befallen them over the years? Where did Pharaoh get that idea? Where did Nero get that idea? Where did a Russian regime get that idea? Where did Hitler get that idea? Where did many of the Arab nations get that idea? That's satanically motivated. Making war with her offspring, but we'll see in a minute, making war with her herself. And even think about the little nation of Israel today. About 9 million people are now in Israel, surrounded by hundreds of millions of people in these Arab nations, most of which are publicly on record saying, We wish you didn't exist and you were gone. And if you get thrown into the sea, happy day for us, right? There was a report that was given in Harper's Magazine a few years back about a Muslim mother who encouraged her son to go commit suicide and to martyr himself. And she went on record, and I'm going to quote what she said about her son who did in fact martyr himself. She said, because I love my son, I encourage him to die a martyr's death for the sake of Allah. I asked Allah to give me 10 Israelis for Muhammad. That's her son's name. And Allah granted me my request. Muhammad made his dream come true, killing 10 Israeli settlers and soldiers. And our God honored him even more and that there were many Israelis wounded. Where does that come from? I want to sacrifice my son so that I can get 10 tally marks. Let's just make sure they're Jewish tally marks. Where where does someone get that idea? The Bible will tell you that that is a satanic idea, that Satan is anti-Christ and Satan is anti-Semitic, that he hates Jesus and he hates the Jews. And I love how Adrian Rogers said it. It's so bottom shelf. He said, I love Jesus and I love the Jews. If for no other reason than that Satan hates them. 
I want to love what Satan hates. And I thought, amen to that. Like, that's a simple way to look at it, that if Satan hates the Jews and Satan hates Jesus, then I want to be the opposite of Satan and I want to love Jesus and I want to love the Jews. Here's what it says in verse number six. It begins to unfold. And honestly, this is the kind of the centerpiece of the whole text is it begins to tell you about this strategic flight that takes place. It gives you the woman, it gives you this war, and then it gives you this woe. So it t- introduces it, and there's this scene change here in, in verse number six. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now, verses one through five are primarily past. Once you get to verse number six, you look future. And the rest of chapter 12 goes future. And it gives you in seed form what you'll see through the rest of the chapter that this woman Israel flees into the wilderness to this special place. And there she is somehow supernaturally taken care of. And it tells you for 2,000, excuse me, 1,203 score days. That's 1,260. If you remember through our study, we've already heard this number. It's the same as 42 months. It's the same as three and a half years. This is tribulation language. And we have seen and will continue to see that during this last three and a half years, it's called great tribulation. There will be this renewed emphasis on and spiritual revival in Israel throughout the course of this time. And this verse will be Explained in greater detail in a few moments, but there's this immediate scene change and you see that the the flight of this woman is connected to this war. And here's what it says. This may trip you out, but it's black ink on white paper. There was war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Now, different cultures over the course of time have had different warriors and military leaders that have risen up and have become famous, that are known generation after generation after generation. So you would have names like Achilles or Genghis Khan or Lancelot, whether they're uh, fiction or nonfiction, there are these warriors that we know time after time after time, Ragnar Lothbrok and the Vikings. This tells you about an angelic warrior who is the leader and is famous, the archangel Michael. And war breaks out where? In heaven. And it tells you that Michael and his angels start to fight against the dragon and the dragon fought with his angels. So there's these two armies that begin to war in heaven. In verse eight, and the devil prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon, he was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Verse number 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. What's happening here? Well, there's a lot happening here. There's this unseen war in the spiritual realm that we don't get greater detail on in scripture or in revelation. We just get this little snippet. So how does all this work and how does it play out? I can't tell you everything, but there's this war that happens and we learn that there are spiritual forces at work. 
And Michael battles with the devil and his angels and his angels. And we're told that Satan is formally expelled. He, you say, wasn't Satan expelled from heaven previously? Like he was cast down and he took a third of the, the angels with him. Like, didn't that already happen? Yes, but there still is limited access to heaven. You're, you see that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he stands before God and he slanders them and he accuses them, i.e. Job. Right, Satan becomes, comes before God. Job don't really love you. Come on. You've made his life all peachy and it's a bed of roses. Make the going tough and see if he doesn't jump ship on you, God. He doesn't have what it takes. He doesn't really care for you. And he begins to accuse Job and to slander Job before God in heaven. And what does God say? All right, let's test this. And of course, Job passes the test and he's tried and he comes forth as gold. But that's a little window into what is still happening that the Satan accuses and slanders. And this is the moment where he tries to lead some sort of revolt. How that works, I don't know. But he tries to lead some sort of revolt and Satan is officially banished. Done, number blocked, no trespassing. You cannot be here any longer. Adios. And we're told that heaven rejoices over this. They begin to sing and they begin to praise and they, they begin to be happy. Finally, he's out of here. Finally, you're not permitting him any more access and he's gone, right? Now, I'll, I wanna pause. I'm gonna get back to Israel in a minute, but I wanna pause and just recognize some of the unbelievable truths that are, rec that are uh, represented here. First of all, you see very, very clearly that evil is not abstract, what you find is that there is an intelligent being who is the source of evil. Now, there is evil in our world. We don't, as Christians, look at our world through rose-colored lenses and think that everything is just happy and wonderful because there is, there is hate and there is violence and there is murder and there is racism and there's all kinds of stuff that is atrocious. Where does evil come from? Well, it comes from an intelligent evil being and Satan's little mafia is organized to control the world behind the scenes. That is the story that the Bible presents from cover to cover. So know that evil is not abstract, but understand how does the evil one work? And it tells you, he's the devil. That devil means slanderer. What is slander? Slander is when I say something to make someone else look small in your eyes. And the devil can slander Job before God. The devil can slander you to yourself. He's the slanderer. He is the accuser. That's what Satan means. And it tells us he's the accuser of the brethren. He's also the deceiver. It tells us he deceives the whole world. So how does he work? Slander, accusations, and deception and lies. That's how he works. So this can, this can start to make sense of reality that you see day to day. You ever wonder why it is that you can take the glorious truth of Jesus that has so transformed and captivated your heart, that Jesus came and he loves you and that sins can be forgiven and there's a home in heaven and you can take what is to you good news and you can share that with your family or you can share that with a neighbor or a coworker or someone, and it just seems like they don't get it. The penny doesn't drop, the light bulb doesn't come on, and this, this glorious truth to you 
is not glorious at all to them. And you step back and you wonder like, how can you not get it? Like this, is, this makes so much sense to me, right? Well, there may be multiple reasons why that is, but 2 Corinthians tells us at least a lot of why that is. That Satan has blinded the minds of them which do not believe. Why? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What's happening in those moments? Oftentimes, here's what's happening. Satan is blinding, Satan is deceiving, and, it, and the light's not getting through. You ever wonder culturally why it is that a girl says, I'm a dude now, I'm a man. And my psychological reality is that trumps my biological reality, even though the biological reality is stone cold. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a dude, I'm a girl. And as a Christian, you're looked at like you're nuts if you don't buy that, right? And you get all kinds of shade thrown on you if you so much hint at the fact that, that maybe perhaps your gender and your sex are attached to each other in a fix and we shouldn't separate these two. And, and people look at you like you're the crazy one. And you step back and you think like, how did, how did we get here? Like, I don't feel like I was deceived. I feel like there's some deception happening right now, right? This happens all the time. But I would be quick to point out before you go look at culture and you look at them and say, oh, look, they're deceived and they're believing a lie and there's this and there's that. I would be quick to say, look inside because the devil plays these games with you. You know how we're told in Ephesians 6, we fight the spiritual warfare. We're told that we have a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Next phrase, and we pray in the spirit. We got a Bible and prayer. Do you know how many Christians have said to me verbatim, I just don't know how to pray. Where did that come from? I don't know how to pray. Well, we'll start here. God, I feel like I don't know how to pray. Can you teach me to pray? Well, ta-da, you prayed, right? <laughs> prayer is talking to God. But I know a whole lot of people who have bought this idea that I don't know how to pray and they will take that thought and they will host it and give it a cup of coffee and just believe it. They just buy it. Now, where did that thought come from? Did, that, did God send that thought to you to say, hey, you, I just wanna let you know, I gave you access to me. There's this throne room, I'm awesome. I mean, you can, ask, you can ask of me anything you want. And this is a beautiful thing. The priesthood of the believer, you can talk to me, but hey, guess what? You don't know how to pray. Just thought I'd let you know. That thought come from God? Does that thought line up with God's word that we should pray without ceasing? That it presumes that we pray? If that thought didn't come from God and that thought doesn't line up with God's word, where'd that come from? I'll tell you what that is, that's slander. That's let me tell you a truth and help you think less of you. Because if you believe that you can't pray and you don't know how to pray, guess what? You won't pray. You're toast, you're not even gonna try because you can't after all, right? You know how many Christians I've had tell me, I, I just can't understand this. It's, just, it's too big, it's too complicated, it's too King James-ish, it's too whatever. I just can't understand it. Listen to me. I don't know if you can read or not, but I'm gonna presume that most of you can. You have a long history of learning new things. Like you did it in first grade, then you did it in second grade, then you did it in third grade. Probably none of you dropped out of third. 
And you did it again in the next year and the next year and the next year. And guess what? You're still doing it. Because work, they come out with a new policy and they give it to you and you read it. You may not understand it at first, but then you take their little training. You know, the one that's like on the computer that's super boring that you want to fall asleep on. You know that one? You take the little training and then all of a sudden you, oh, that's what the policy means. That's what they're expecting. And guess what? You understand it. You mean to tell me, I'm not saying it doesn't take any work, but you're telling me you can't understand this? Where did that thought come from? That came from God? He just wanted you to know, hey, other people can understand it. You know, Pastor Mark, he has an MDiv, he's a pastor. He'll be able to understand it, but you, not you. You just, you just sit on the sidelines. Don't, don't even bother. Don't even open it up. This isn't for you. That come from God? No. He tells all of us to be in the word. That line up with God's word? But what do we do? We take the deception, we take the slander, we take the accusation, and we buy it. And we're worse off for it. And then we're sitting there wondering, like, we're, why are we getting beat up spiritually? And I never pick up, I never pick up the sword of the spirit. I never, I never go to prayer because I've convinced myself that I can't. And here's what I'm trying to say. Stop hosting those thoughts. Do not allow those thoughts to pull up a chair at the table of your mind and serve them a meal. Before you get the campfire going and say, let's, let's sit around and just chit chat with each other here. I can't study. I can't figure it out. I can't pray. I'm a loser. God has no plan for me. Before you host that, why don't you, why don't you think for a minute, did that come from the Lord? Does that line up from his word? I know lots of Christians that beat themselves up and they convince themselves, excuse me, the devil has convinced them that they are second class and that they'll never amount to anything and that there's these spiritual giants who will go be missionaries and they'll do something. But for me, it's just my job to come to church and to learn something and to struggle through the week and then to go on with life and do it all over again. Living this life of quiet despair spiritually. Come on. Come on. You don't buy the lie. When God tells you, or God, when the devil tells you you're second class, that you're a loser, did that come from the Lord? God, did you just want to remind me that I'm a loser? Does, does his word say that? I'm pretty sure it tells me that I'm a dear child. I'm pretty sure if I turn over here, it tells me I'm adopted into his family, that I am redeemed, that I am chosen. Oh, look over here. It tells me that I'm his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Man, I'm, I'm like God's masterpiece. I wonder if God makes junk. Probably not. Understand how the devil works. And understand what it says here, that there are some that overcame him. Look what it said. What was that verse? Verse number 11. They overcame him how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto death. How'd they overcome the devil? Cleansing, confession, and courage. The blood of the lamb. First John tells us that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. They have been cleaned from their sin, not because of them, but because of the Lord Jesus. And you shouldn't give place to the devil. You shouldn't give the devil an opportunity. So you live a close and clean life with Jesus. Confession, the word of their testimony. Look, you have a past and so do I. All of us do. Some of them are on record. Some of them are expunged from the record. Some of them never made it into the record. But nevertheless, there's a record in your mind. And Satan would love to beat you over the head with that. Don't allow it. 
When he comes to beat you up with your past, just remind him what Jesus did. Just go to Calvary, remind him of who you are biblically. Don't buy his lies. Tell him, I'm a king and a priest according to this book. I don't feel like it every day, but I am. And, and send him packing. Overcame him, how? By cleansing, by confession, by courage. It says that these people, they kept on loving Jesus, even if it meant their death. There was some Christian courage that they possessed. But here's what it says. It says that this, it tells you very quickly, there's this woman who takes flight. It goes to this war in heaven, but now it's going to connect those two events. What in the world does Israel flee into the wilderness have to do with war in heaven? Well, here's what it says. Verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. This is praise for heaven. The devil has no more access. Permanently banished. Now he will eventually be assigned to eternal destruction. That's not gonna happen just yet, but it's coming up in Revelation. But this is phase one, if I could call it that. He is permanently banished and heaven says, yes. But on earth, woe. Woe to the inhabitants of earth and of the sea. For the devil's come down to you and he has great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. You get what this is saying? When the seventh trumpet sounded and it was like, woe, this is going to be bad. And now it says, woe, this is going to be bad. Here's why. The devil's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. And part of the advantage for the inhabitants of earth is that if he's spending his time accusing people in heaven, he's not down here. Now, his munchkins may be, but he's not. And what this says is, earth, beware. He's not going to sit in a corner and suck his thumb. He's ticked, he lost, he couldn't get the baby. So what is he going to do now? He knows his time is limited. He's a cornered animal. If he can't get the baby, now he's going to try to get the woman. It's almost like drug cartelish. I can't get you, so I'm going to go after your family. And here's what it says. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was cast onto earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. So this starts this tremendous time of persecution that is unfathomable. Verse 14, to the woman were given, <coughs> excuse me, two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place. She's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Okay, what just happened? I don't know what wings of an eagle exactly mean. Some are like, eagle, that's America, right? Like, that's our bird. You know, America saves Israel. I don't know. Kind of speculative, honestly. Wings of eagles, those are like F, F fighter series jets, eh, kind of speculative. The Bible uses the same metaphor of when they were delivered from Egypt and there was no America and there were no fighter jets, you know. But it at least says this, that somehow there's this miraculous deliverance. The, the, the devil comes after Israel in a tremendous way and they are delivered and they go to this place where they have provision and it tells you that the, here's the duration, time, times, time and a half. Time singular one, times plural two, one plus two, three, half a time, half, three and a half. It's the same thing as 1,260 days. It's the same thing as 42 months. It's the same thing as three and a half years. It's the same, it's different language, but it's the same language. So for three and a half years coming after, but 
is delivered, verse 15, the serpent cast out, out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. What does all that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I tend to take it literally. Is that metaphorical for something else and representative? I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you this. God knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. He is in control. And there is a large portion of the nation of Israel that he protects in a supernatural way. I know that much. Verse number uh, 17, you see Israel's saving faith. And this is so encouraging. So the dragon is wroth with the woman. And he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here is this, this rivalry of Satan versus the woman. And what does it tell you? There's a time factor, it's three and a half years. This lines up completely with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. The, when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, you better run for the mountains when that happens and pray that it's not on the Sabbath day and pray that it's not winter time and pray that you don't have a baby to take with you because you better run quick. There's going to be persecution like you've never seen before completely lines up with it. It tells you that there's at least part of them who are, are, don't make it or escape into the wilderness. And Jesus intimates as much in Matthew 24. And now the devil turns his attention to them and wants to, wants to destroy them. Jesus goes so far as to say in Matthew 24, that if there wasn't a temporary time period on it, that everybody would be wiped out. That no one would be left standing. That, that it's, it's war like you've never seen. But it tells us not only is there a time factor and a tribulation factor and people are, are being persecuted, but there is a triumph factor. That there is this spiritual revival that happens and now the seed of the woman, the children of Israel, begin to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And I will be quick to say that this too lines up with prophecy. So I know, I know I'm being teachy today, but let me teach one more time before I preach and we'll be done. You see this in Zechariah? Chapter 12, saying that there will be a day where the children of Israel look on whom they've persecuted and they will grieve because of it and they will recognize what they did. You see this in the next chapter of Zechariah, chapter number 13, telling you that the children of Israel and uh, the, the house of Israel have this fountain for cleansing that's made available to them. And this is, I think, exactly what Paul says in Romans. And I want you to turn there and we'll be done. Romans 11. Look, if you would, in verse number 25. This is a chapter where God says, the children of Israel did not believe. Who put the Jewish Messiah on a cross? The Jews did. Who rejected their Messiah? The Jews did. And now there is access given to the Gentiles for, to which we're grateful. And he says that we're grafted in. And Paul begins to warn the Gentile church, which would be us. And he says, don't look down your nose at Israel and don't beat them up. Here's what he says, verse 25. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And there's a handful of Christians that are ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits and you think that you're the stuff. 
that the blindness in part has happened to Israel, not full blindness, but partial blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins as concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sakes, right? Who was persecuting Paul? Who was trying to get him killed with the Roman government? Who, was, who were the biggest, what was the biggest opposition to Christianity? It was the Jews in the first century until you get later in the first century. But at the beginning, it's the Jewish people. And he says, they're enemies for your sakes, but it's touching the election. They're still beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. What is he saying? He's saying, I made some promises to Israel. I haven't forgotten the promises to Israel. I know that they're against you and they're persecuting you right now, but be patient and don't despise them and, and, and don't try to go toe-to-toe in war with them because there is coming a day when the partial blindness will be lifted and there will be deliverance. It's exactly what Zechariah prophesied about and it's exactly what Revelation 12 talks about. There's a spiritual revival that will happen, but there will be persecution that happens in immense ways. Say, Pastor... Thank you for all the information. Can you remind me what this means for my life? Yes. What this means for your life is that evil is not abstract. There is an intelligent evil force behind the evil in our world. And we better understand that spiritual reality and the cosmic battle that exists. Otherwise, we're going to be ignorant and sleeping in the barracks while war happens. What does this mean for your life? It means that God still has a promise that he'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And as Christians, we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and declaring the gospel, but we are not the enemies of Israel and God still has a plan for them. It means that if you wanna overcome the devil, how do you do it? You overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of your testimony, and with some Christian courage, being faithful, even if it means your death. And there's coming a day where Satan will have more time on his hands to hurt the people of earth. And thank God the church will be raptured at that point. But he will have more time on his hands to hurt the people of earth. And this will cause on one hand a revival to some degree in Israel, but it will also be a time, as the book says, of judgment and trumpets and tribulation that is not pretty. More to come on that next week. We're gonna see the Antichrist and the beast and the mark of the beast and that whole stuff that people get spun up about. This begins to tell you at least the cliff note version of what this will look like for the nation of Israel for three and a half years.